Well, hey, good morning. You guys having a good weekend? Good, good. Glad you guys are here. Do me a favor. Open your Bibles up to Luke 15. We're going to be in Luke 15. We are in our third week of a series that we have titled, The King is in the Room. And basically what we're doing this summer is we want to look at passages in the gospel that really shine a highlight on who Jesus is. Maybe what he taught, maybe his character. But we thought as a summer, what we want to do is we really want to bring the spotlight on to Jesus. And when we were in a meeting deciding who was going to preach what passage, I raised my my hand quickly and said, I want Luke 15. I want the story of the prodigal son. No one else can have it. All right. This is my favorite passage to preach in all of the gospels. And I would argue that there is not a passage in all of scripture that more clearly shows the condition of the human heart and God's amazing love for us, even though we don't deserve it. And every single time I come to this passage, I learn something new. I see something in a fresh way. And even though this is such a familiar story, a lot of authors have said this is the greatest story that has ever been written or ever been told. And even though it's so familiar, even though we have probably heard it before, I'm convinced we are going to leave here this morning both challenged and encouraged. So if you're ready, can you just hear me? Can you just tell me you're ready? Can you say I'm ready? ready. Good. That's good for me to hear. All right. Look at verse 11 in chapter 15. Here's what it says. It says this. It says, and he said, so this is Jesus teaching to a group of people. He says, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son had gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far off country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. All right, so Jesus is telling a parable, and a parable was a a story that Jesus told that had a hidden spiritual truth or meaning. And, And Jesus wouldn't tell what the meaning was, but it was up to the hearer to kind of parse that out. And in this story, a man has two sons, and the youngest leaves, and he's the prodigal son. He says, Dad, give me my inheritance. I'm doing my own thing. I'm leaving. I want out. And in these verses, we see the what with the prodigal son. Right? He's prodigal because he leaves. That, that's obvious. But what I want to do is I want to take a couple minutes and I want to look at why did the prodigal son leave? What made the prodigal son become prodigal? Why did he go this way? What was going on in his heart that caused him to want to leave? And I think if we look at these verses carefully, um, we can see the first thing this morning is this. It's that discontentment drives our prodigal heart. The reason the younger son went prodigal was because his heart was discontent. And by the way, the reason we run from God is because our hearts often become discontent. You see it all over the place in this story. He's discontent with his relationships. He's like, Dad, I want nothing to do with you. I don't want relationship with you anymore. I don't want to be under your authority. I don't want to be your son. I want to go away. He's dissatisfied with his relationship with his brother. Right? I, I, I don't care to be your brother. I don't care to be your friend. I don't care to work alongside you. I don't want to care for dad with you as he gets older. I want to go. He's dissatisfied, discontent with his relationships. He's discontent with his stage of life. Right? Like, it, 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 you guys know how inheritance works, right? You get inheritance when someone dies, right? right? It's what you get when a loved one dies. The younger son's not waiting for dad to die. 
He's like, I don't want to wait. I don't want to be patient. I don't want to wait on the timing of the Lord. I want this now. You need to divide up the property today. And think about it. If you own a piece of land and that land is your wealth, if you divide it in two, you can't make as much money as you used to off that same piece of land. The dad would have had to take out a loan to give money to the son, or he would have had to sell the land, which means he can't make as much income. He was hurting his dad and brother's livelihood by saying, I want my inheritance right now. He was um, shotgunning the process. He was also discontent with where he was. I'm getting out of here. He's going to a far off country. Get me as far away from my family and this life as I possibly can. There is discontentment all over the heart of this younger son. In church, look at me. Um, this June, I preached an entire sermon series uh, on um, the book of Psalms and talking about how they can be a GPS to amazing things. I could preach an entire sermon series on discontentment. I believe that discontentment is the leading socially acceptable sin that you and I live with. I think our hearts are so comfortable and confident in discontent, we don't even know what contentment looks like most of the time. We live in a culture that makes discontentment the normal. Do you know that our economy runs on discontentment? Do you know that there are billions of dollars spent on research and marketing every year, all targeted to make you feel discontent with what you have in order that you'll buy new stuff? But like, this is how it works. So um, growing up my whole life, I've been a big fan of sports. And the sport that I follow most closely isn't an American sport. It's actually British soccer. And I'm a Manchester United fan. I have been a Manchester United fan my whole life. And... Um, in the good years and in the bad years, that's my team. So I need to ask you a question. How many Manchester United soccer jerseys is it reasonable for a grown man like me to own? How many would you think? Like the correct answer is one, right? right? Like, like it's reasonable to own a Manchester United soccer jersey. I'm a fan. I can buy one jersey. Do I own just one Manchester United soccer jersey? No, I do not. And, and here's why. Because every stinking year, right around this time when the season's beginning, they release the new jersey. And it looks different. And the colors are a little bit different. And the pattern's different. And I see it and I'm like, oh man, all my other jerseys stink. I got to get the new one, right? It's about this year. I got to support the team this year. And then guess what happens? In about three months from now, they'll release a new kit, but it will be a different color. Then it's like, I can't have the red one or the blue one. I've got to have the white one. That's the really cool one. And then about in February, right, when I'm getting bored with the team because they're terrible, they'll release a third kit. That's the coolest kit that they've been saving all year. And it's like, they're, they're, they're just baiting me to spend money. And I went in my closet and in shame, looked at the six Manchester United jerseys and said, listen, I don't even wear soccer jerseys. Right? But like, this is how it works. Like, make you discontent with what you have so you'll get the next thing. Like, there's a phrase for this in our society called retail therapy. Right? It's like when I'm stressed or anxious or down, you know what's going to make me feel good? Just cruising on Amazon, just looking at new stuff that might make me feel better. It's a bad plan. Can I ask you a question? How, how do we determine success at work? either corporately or individually, isn't the best way that we determine success forward momentum, that we're growing, right? So if you're a business, you're successful if you're making more money. If your profit margins are better, if you're hiring more employees, if you're having a bigger slice of the pie, that's forward momentum, it's growth. And if you're healthy, you're growing. Individually, it's the same way. 
If I'm making more money, if I'm going up the corporate ladder, if I'm getting more responsibilities, if I'm moving to that next position, that's how you judge success. And listen, that's not all bad, but can I ask you this question? How does contentment fit with forward momentum? Right? If the goal is to always be moving forward and advancing, it doesn't leave a lot of room to be content with where God has you, does it? Discontentment is woven into how we view success. And on top of that, we have social media where our friends are constantly posting pictures of all the fun places they are and the fun things they're doing that we are not doing right now. So every time you turn on your phone, there's another avenue towards discontentment. And so church, what you need to understand is if we're being taught to be discontent with what we have, if we're being taught to be discontent in our work environment and um, in our social environment, we shouldn't be shocked when discontentment travels to our stage of life or our marriage or our church. Discontentment is woven into the fabric of who we are. And here's why this is so dangerous. is because all discontentment does is rob us of the joy that God wants us to have right here and right now. You being discontent doesn't fix anything. It just robs you of joy. I came across this poem a few weeks ago. It was actually written by a junior high student, and I just thought there was so much wisdom in it, and I wanted to share it with you this morning. Here's what it says. It says this, it was spring, but it was summer that I wanted, the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall that I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring that I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted, to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 that I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged that I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over and I never got what I wanted. <laughs> Isn't there like some, some pretty profound truth coming from the words of a, of a child there? They're like, listen, we can live our whole life always being like, man, I, I'm going to get to that next thing. And, and church, here's what's amazing. We believe that contentment is a destination on a map. And so we're like, I'm not content right now, but there's a day coming when I'm going to settle down and I'm going to retire, and then I'll find contentment. I just got to get through this season. But here's the thing. The Bible does not view contentment as a place on a map. It actually views it as a mark of spiritual maturity. It's a mark of sanctification, of our growth in faith in Christ. Paul writes this in Philippians 4. He says this, he says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in every circumstance. I have learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul's like, it doesn't matter what situation I'm in. I know how to have a lot. I know how to have a little. I found, and it's interesting. He says there's a secret to being content. And I'm convinced that so much of the stress and anxiety that we live with has this root that we haven't learned the secret of contentment, so we live our lives discontent. Like, again, think about this. How did sin enter the world? Right? God placed Adam and Eve in a garden that was a paradise. All right? I don't want you to miss this. Adam and Eve, before they ran into Satan, they needed nothing. All of their needs were met. They had everything they wanted. They had perfect relationships both with each other and with God. They were in paradise. And what did Satan get them to do? Hey, let's get your eyes off of all of the things that God has given you. 
Get your eyes off of the garden, out of all of the trees, how, how good God has been. And let's get your eyes on the one thing you don't have that you, you want. Hey, you can be like God. You can know what God knows. You can eat of the fruit of this tree. He taught their hearts to be discontent, which led them to sin. And by the way, church, look at me. Satan plays the same game with us all the time. If he can get your eyes off of all of the blessings that he has given you and can get you to focus and obsess over what you don't have, he has you in the palm of his hand. And some of you guys are living there. So what's this secret? What's the secret that Paul's learned? Here's what it is, church. It's active thankfulness. Active thankfulness is the pathway out of discontentment. Right? You can't become content by just telling yourself to be more content. It doesn't work like that. Well, I just need to be more content. We probably all said that to ourselves. The way you become content is you pursue active thankful thankfulness. Look at Philippians 4, 6 and 7. It says this. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I am convinced that that line, with thanksgiving, is the secret. He's saying, don't just pray when you're anxious or stressed, but pray with a thankful heart. Choose to have a posture of thankfulness for who God is, all that he's done for you and what he's given you, and you will have a peace that defeats your stress and anxiety. Um, it was interesting, just this Tuesday night, it was about 11.15 at night, and all of a sudden we hear a knock on our door. And our uh, oldest son, Bo, he's nine, he comes down and he's running about 103 degree fever. He's just burning up. It was a quick 24-hour virus. He's, he's fine. But he, he comes in, and then we give him some medicine, and he's laying on, on my chest, and he's just shaking like this. Like, he's really feeling miserable. And, and so I'm trying to cuddle him. I'm trying to scratch his back, and then he tells me where exactly I need to scratch his back, you know, all of those things. And all of a sudden, that inner dialogue starts to happen. And I'm starting to stress out. It's like, man, I need to get some sleep tonight. I've got meetings in the morning. I've got things that I've got to get done. I'm writing a message this week. Like, I can't be wiped out tomorrow. And I'm like, it's going to take an hour for this kid's fever to break. And, and, and I don't know how this is going to go. I start to feel anxious. And in that moment, again, I've been studying this passage. And, and I hear the Holy Spirit tell me, Cal, you need to pray. And you need to just give thanks to God right now. So all of a sudden, I close my eyes. And I'm cuddling my son. And I'm like, God, thank you for Bo. Thank you that I have a son that, that, that loves me, that wants to come to me when he's not feeling well. And God, thank you for medicine, that we can give him things that can help soothe these symptoms. And I was like, God, thank you for Mary, who's just an incredible partner in parenting with me. And I love her so much, and she's such a gift. And I started thinking through my day. And on Tuesday, I got to hang out with Pastor Brian, who preached here last week, who's my mentor. I got to spend all day with him. And I'm like, God, that was such a gift. It was such a blessing. He lives in Indy. I live here. We don't get to hang out as much as I'd like, but I got to hang out with him and his family for a whole day. Like, God, what a blessing. And, and God, thank you for this church, and thank you that my kids know you and love the Lord. And even though their parents are in ministry, they still have a heart for ministry. I just started thanking him for things going on in my life. And all of a sudden, I just could feel a rush of peace enter my heart in that moment. You know why? Because what Paul promises in Philippians 4 was happening, praying with thanksgiving. Can I ask you a question, church? When's the last time you've gone before the Lord and your only agenda with him is just to thank him for what he's done for you? No crisis, not asking for anything, 
not wishing that anything was different. When's the last time you've sat down before the Lord and just thanked him for who he is and what he's done for you? How long has it actually been? Because church, I promise you, that will change your heart to moving from discontentment to thankfulness. Well, let's keep reading. Look at verse 14. It says this, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. All right, so you know how the story goes. He goes to a far country, and he parties his money away. He basically goes to college at a state school, right? Super expensive, lots of parties. You come out with nothing, right? He blew all of his money. And then a famine hit the land, and he couldn't have a job. He couldn't support himself. And he was actually working with pigs, feeding them, jealous of how well they could eat. And again, for the Jewish audience, pigs were unclean. So, so Jesus is saying, like, this guy was lower than the lowest. He is at a bad spot. All right, but look at verse 17. It says this. It says, but when he came to himself, and I just want to pause there for a moment. Do me a favor. If you take notes in your Bible, can you underline that one phrase right there? But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Okay, here's why I want you to highlight that phrase, because that is the moment of supernatural grace. Grace begins in this story at verse 17, this moment where this son opens his eyes and realizes what he has done and where he is at. You see, most people, when they think of the story of the prodigal son, they think about the moment of grace being how the father receives the son when he comes home. And that's amazing, and we're going to get there in a moment. But the moment of supernatural grace is actually before that in verse 17, in this beautiful little phrase, and when he came to himself. Church, do you remember last week when Pastor Brian said that nothing with eternal significance happens without the movement of the Holy Spirit? This is the moment where the Holy Spirit invades the heart of the younger son. And in this moment, three things happen. The first thing he realizes is that he's miserable. He says to himself, I am miserable. And, and listen, this one's the easiest one. This one's obvious. He, he's feeding pigs, right? Some things are so obvious you don't even really need to say it. I remember a couple of years ago, um, my youngest son, Judah, who's seven now, he was five at the time, and um, he uh, was climbing out of my wife's minivan, and he wasn't paying attention, and he decided to dive out of the minivan headfirst, right? And he landed right on the pavement, and not only did he land on the pavement, he, he landed on a pebble of, an, of the asphalt that got lodged into his head. So he falls, there's a piece of asphalt in his head, and then it swells up, so Mary can't get the pebble out, and she's like, she calls me. She's like, am I going to have to bring him to the ER? I'm like, just call the doctor. And the doctor's like, no, when the swelling goes down, the body will force it out. He'll be fine. He just might have a pebble in his head for a little bit. He had it in his head for six weeks, all right? <laughs> Couldn't get it out. And uh, so I come home from work that day, and Judah greets me at the door, and he's like, hey, Dad, do you see my rock? And like, I'm trying not to giggle, and I come upstairs, and I'm like, so Mary, rough day, huh? And Mary just gives me this look, and she's like, Cal, our son has a rock lodged in his head that I can't give out, get out. Obviously, it's not been an amazing day here at the house. How was your day, right? It was obvious. I didn't need to ask how the day went. Like when you're feeding pigs and jealous of the food they're eating, you're miserable. 
First one's obvious, the second one's hard. He realizes that I am the problem. Look what he says in verse 18. He says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He realizes it's his sin. He realizes he is the one that has placed himself in this position. He's, his choices have led him to this spot. Look at me, not everyone can get here. Do you know that it takes humility to say, hey, I'm miserable and it's my fault? Like church, how many of you know someone who makes a mess of their life and it's everyone else's fault but their own, right? If you know someone like that, say, I know someone like that, right? We all know someone like that. Can't get to the point where they can look in the mirror and say, these are the result of my choices. Listen, the younger son is there. That's hard to do. So if the first one's obvious and the second one is hard, the third one is impossible without the spirit of God. And this is what he says. He says, life is found with the father. This is amazing. He, he, he says, I need to get back home. I need to go to dad. I, I, I don't care what it looks like. I, I don't know if I'm going to be a son or, or, or a servant, but life is found with the father. And, and I need to go back to where I was safe, to where life was good, to those who loved me and, and had my best intentions at heart. Even though I've ruined everything, I need to return and the reason I say that this is impossible with the Holy Spirit Church, this is what it looks like to die to yourself. Do you see what the son's doing here? He, he's saying, I'm done with my way. I don't know better. It's not about my agenda anymore. I'm done living autonomously in my own freedom outside of God's rule and reign. This is the moment where he allows Jesus to actually be Lord of his life. I'm coming home. I'll do whatever my father asks. He can be the one who rightfully rules and reigns in my heart. And church, here's the heartbreaking truth. So many people live in the spot where they know the first they can even acknowledge the second, yet they refuse to do the third thing. I'm miserable. I know that I'm the problem, but I will not yield the autonomy over my life and return to God. I won't do it, right? The attitude is, is I'm just gonna do better. This isn't who I actually am. I'm going to try harder. I'll pick myself up. I, I'm just going to live with the guilt and feel bad. And I'm not going to admit that I don't know what's best. Church, I have this on the screen because someone needs to hear this. More of you doing your own thing will not solve anything. It won't. But see, here's the problem. This isn't something that I can convince you of. This is something that only the Lord can do. And I tell Mary often, or, or I talk with our pastors often, and we say, listen, it's not our crisis. We didn't create it, but we can be there to love and to point people to Christ and to help how we can, but only God can change hearts. And listen, I know when this story is taught, you've got prodigal people in your life that, that you start to think of, and it's like we can love them, we can pray with dependency that God moves in their heart, but this idea to return to Christ and to say, God, you need to reign and rule in my life is something only the Lord can do. Look at verse 20. It says, and he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Church, here's the fourth thing we need to see is that God always blows the doors off our expectations. He always blows the doors off our expectations. This is the gospel moment in this story. This is where we see God's heart revealed to us so perfectly, right? Like think about the son's expectations. The son expected to be rejected by his father. He was embraced. He expected to be scolded or maybe even struck or or, or sent away, but he was kissed. The son expected to have to face his guilt and his shame, and he was given new clothes and a ring. He expected to be a servant, and he was made a son. He expected, he expected to stay on the JV team of his father's love, and yet his father killed the most expensive cow they owned and threw a feast Church, this is the good news of the gospel. Church, that you and I come to God with nothing and he blows the doors off what we deserve. We come to him dead in our trespasses and sin and he makes us alive. We come to him guilty of sin and rebellion and rejection of God and he forgives us and he makes us clean and he makes us new. We come broken and he restores. We come as enemies and we are adopted as sons and daughters. We bring nothing to the table. We have nothing to offer God that he doesn't already have in abundance and he gives us himself. First by sending Jesus Christ to die in our place and live the life that we deserve, but then he gives us himself by giving us his spirit. He gives us everything we need for life and godliness. And church, just in case you don't believe me, he doesn't just save us for heaven and our eternity, he saves us for right now. And marriages become restored and families are healed and addiction is broken and prayers are answered. This is the testimony of so many of us in this room that God is faithful to blow the doors off of our expectations and what we deserve. Amen? Amen. Amen. You know, it's interesting. I think the reason we so often struggle believing this is because we are way harder on ourselves than God is, aren't we? We're like, I, I think I need to feel guilty. That, that's what I deserve. I, I, I've sinned. I've been a jerk. I need to carry this, the, the, this burden of shame. Or it's like, you know what? I need to prove to God that I'm serious. So I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to go to all the services and I'm going to do all the things and I'm going to make it about my effort. And, and God's like, no, 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 no. You don't have to do that. I've embraced you. I've given you the new clothes. You have the ring. We're at the party. Just celebrate my love for you and all that I'm doing in your life. You know, it's interesting. Um, I would say probably the most famous American hymn or hymn that we know in the history of our country is Amazing Grace, right? You know, that song is 243 years old this year, which is amazing because our country is only 246 years old. Think about that. America was three when Amazing Grace was, was written. Why is it still so famous today? Because I think those are the two most perfect words that describe God's love. It's grace and it's amazing. There's no better way to say it. All right, look at verse 25 with me. It says, now his older son was in the field and he came and he drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. 
But he was angry and he refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, I love this last section of this parable. And I think Jesus added it for a reason. Here's why. Um, Because he's showing us that God is patient with us even as we struggle. Like, I love this picture of the older son. The older son, he's out working in the field. He's being faithful. He's never left his father's side. He comes home. He hears the party, and he's angry. (coughs) And it says he refuses to go in. He's outside throwing a pity party, and, and you can see some of the seeds of discontentment starting to take root in his life. He doesn't want to be at the party. He's mad at his father. He doesn't want to hang out with his brother. He's not in good headspace. So what does the father do? Does he ignore him? Does he send him home? Does he say, just get over yourself? No, he doesn't do that at all. It says he leaves the party and he entreats his son. And when the son's like, listen, it's not fair. I don't understand. I don't get it. Your grace doesn't make sense for me. It feels like you're being way too easy on him when I've been faithful for a a, a long time. Like, God, I, I don't agree with your justice system. Then look what he does in verse 31. I love this. It says, and he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. Don't you see how this, the father's reassuring the older son? Listen, you're mine. Everything I have is yours. He's reassuring him of his identity and the father's love for him. And, and then he's saying, get your eyes on the bigger picture. Our, your brother, my son, who we thought was dead, is alive. It's a good thing to celebrate grace. And here's why I love this. I think so often we think that relationship with God means that we can never ask him hard questions or struggle or fail to understand what he's doing. And I think so often we stiff arm the Lord because it's like, man, I can't uh, say that I'm a a believer or I can't really press into the things of the Lord until I'm 100% confident and I feel amazing about everything that's happening. And what this passage is saying is you don't always need to feel like that. It says that the father came to the son and was like, listen, I love you. Everything I have is yours. It's okay to struggle. Just don't stay in that place. Trust me. Come to the party and rejoice with what I am rejoicing with. Listen, God is not scared of your doubts or your fears or your concerns. The question is, is what are you going to do with that? Is that going to cause you to remove yourself from the things of the Lord? Or are you going to step in and press in with faith? Okay, so here's how I want to close this morning. I just want to close with a really, really simple question. It's this. What's keeping you from trusting this God? And and here's why I ask this. I think the amazing thing about the prodigal son is this story that like when we see this view of God as this loving father, we're like, man, I love this. Isn't he so good? Isn't he so patient? Isn't he so gracious? Isn't he so faithful? And and man, one of the things that really drew me to a love of Jesus and the love of the gospel was seeing God's heart in this way. And, And if we really believe that God is this good and this is the character of our God. So what I'm saying is if we believe that Jesus was telling the truth, why are we so often unwilling to trust this same God? 
So often practically, we're like, no, I've got to figure it out by myself. No, I've got to do things on my own timing. I don't trust that where God has me is the right place. That's why I'm discontent. I don't trust that God will provide. That's why I'm anxious. I don't trust that God is sovereign over all things. That's why I'm stressed. But can I ask you a question? Where in your life does discontentment ring around in your heart? What are the things that you're like, you know what? I, I, I need to make a turn towards thankfulness and trusting in the Lord with these things that I tend to stress and worry about. That's what sanctification looks like. That's what spiritual maturity looks like. It's like, listen, there's a secret. It's not being stressed out about my circumstances. It's choosing to live with thankfulness and trust that this father is actually good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this passage. I just thank you for um, a passage of scripture that's so famous, yet your word is alive and it's active. And and man, I've learned so much this week and you've worked in my heart in such a a powerful way. God, I just pray that you would do the same in in the people of this room. I'm thankful for a church that loves you and loves your word. And and God, um, I even pray right now as we close that our hearts would be thankful for your goodness that any discontentment we have in our life, we would yield to you and that we would live life through the lens of your faithfulness and goodness and amazing grace in our lives. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.